Hello, and welcome to The Two View, the cutting-edge podcast for PAs and nurse practitioners in emergency medicine and urgent care. I'm NP Martha Roberts, and I'm here with my co-host and faculty partner, PA Michael Sharma. What's up, Mike? Hello, Martha. Hello, everyone watching out there on the live stream. It's pretty cool that we are starting to advertise that more because we love to get feedback from everyone watching in the middle of the episode. I know that one of the things that you've always pushed for, Martha, is making this an interactive podcast, right? So how cool would that be to take questions during the thing? We're ready for you, YouTube watchers. There's five of you right now. Let's keep that going. So all right, well, a quick shout-out. Thanks, Martha, by the way, for the intro. Shout-out also to the Michigan Academy of PAs Fall CME Conference. That is kicking off in about two days now. Still some chances to get uh, slots for that virtually or in person. If you happen to live in the Mitten State, that's what they call Michigan, right? The Mitten State? Is that yeah. an official thing? Yeah, well, semi-correct, semi, uh, I guess, and depending on who you are. May, yeah, maybe I, official. Yeah, I actually lived in Michigan for about a year. That's my first U.S. state that I called home. So I've got oh. three talks going on there. So uh, feel free to check in with that, PAs, and anyone else who wants to learn about kick-ass medicine. Very All cool. All right, well, go ahead. Let's get this started. Yeah, so we're going to start off the first segment discussing innovation and technology in the ER and urgent care, something very close to my heart, pun intended. Uh-huh. And, we're, and we're, <laughs> we're going to talk about why, but I want to talk a little bit first about a patient case and then discuss two really cool tools, uh, one called um, the Zio Patch and the next, the Loop Recorder. Okay, Martha, so we are not violating HIPAA. You are giving us permission to talk about these things. We've signed all the paperwork. You just had a procedure. I did, and it did not involve extracting things from my rectum. So <laughs> I have done that recently, but not on myself. So <laughs> okay. I guess I better, I better keep the jokes PG here today. But um, I did indeed. I had a cardiac loop recorder implant change out. The battery in my old loop recorder, it died. Well, better that than me. Um, anyway, so it had to get updated. I have a loop recorder because I have this kind of odd sinus bradyhypnosis arrhythmia that I've had ever since I was young. Um, and we really started investigating it. Someone had mentioned to me a couple years ago that maybe I should get a pacemaker. And I thought, no, I don't want to do that. So I really wanted to come up with some really cool, innovative ways to monitor it. Anyways, the procedure was super easy. I had an amazing team of nurses and doctors. Even the echo tech was fabulous. And I was inspired by them. Again, it reminded me to provide the best and most delicate patient care the next time I go to work. You know, being a patient reminds you to do these things, like what it's like, you know, to be the patient in the waiting room or a scared mother or you haven't eaten in 12 hours. It kind of reminds you that there are a lot of questions that even I really needed answering as much as I know about medicine and nursing. I, I really had a bunch of questions, not to mention we could all brush up on our bedside manner. So, yeah, also reminded me of my own mortality because uh, I will be a certain uh, round number soon. And uh, that one was hard to face. Two zero, right? 20 or 30, something like that? Something like that, yeah. <laughs> cool. So anyway, that's my story. So I want to talk about the loop recorders in the Zio patch um, because they're becoming the wave of the future, and I had a great personal experience. There are a ton of NPs and PAs that aren't yet familiar with this technology, and I think it's important that we talk about it, the evidence around it, and what you should do if you see one or both of these in the ER. So let's jump right in. Um, this is not my story, uh, the case study that we're about to present, but it's a it's similar to a patient that I see frequently in the emergency department or urgent care. So, Mike, I want you to present the case, and uh, we'll see where we go. Okay. 
This is a 30-year-old Caucasian female who comes into the emergency department with a, quote, racing heart. The patient said that she was having a normal day, and then she felt some fluttering in her chest, maybe some missed beats. During that time, she did feel a bit dizzy, but did not pass out. No syncope. She did not feel nauseated and did not have any chest pain. She said that it was very scary and that she really wants to get checked out. She denies any fevers, back pain, urinary complaints, or other subjective issues. She's currently completely asymptomatic. Her vital signs are right down the middle, normal, and she looks generally well in the not-sick half of the sick-not-sick paradigm. She has no medical history aside from two C-section deliveries and maybe something thyroidish during my pregnancy. She's not quite sure about that one. She drinks and smokes socially, as opposed to antisocially, I suppose, and denies any recreational drug use. She is a very busy lawyer and said this week was particularly stressful. Her mom died about two months ago. Other than that, she has no complaints. She takes a daily multivitamin, but no other supplements or prescription medications. Okay. So on exam, you find this relatively fit, well-appearing female. She's super anxious, though. She's worried. Something isn't right with this woman. And so you're like, okay, let's do some labs. Let's check her out. You know, her exam's relatively normal. Um, But you do a CBC, a BMP, LFTs, an EKG, of course, chest X-ray. And yeah, you you order a TSH, okay? And we're going to talk about that in a second. So you thought about PE, but she perks out and her heart scores one after her troponin comes back as zero because she smokes. But um, quick side note, we are actually going to talk more about this TSH and its use in the ER towards the end of the podcast because we're going to talk about hyperthyroidism. So if you're already criticizing the fact that we want to get a TSH in the emergency department, I don't blame you. Um, But there's this is still something that I think occasionally we might want to order, and we're going to talk about the importance of that a little later in the show. Okay. Let's get back to this patient. You notice the rest of her exam is normal. Heart sounds, lung sounds, all normal, but she's definitely stressed. She looks, you know, just like uh, concerned still. Her EKG shows a normal sinus rhythm with an incomplete right bundle branch block and a rate of 60. You ask for a urinalysis so you can get a pregnancy test, and so she goes up to go to the bathroom and takes off the cardiac monitor As she gets up to go to the bathroom, she says she feels her heart racing again. She felt a kind of few thumps, a few kind of palpitations in her chest. By the time you get hooked back up and get a repeat 12-lead EKG, everything had gone away again. Yep, story of my life there. I mean, so many things happen when patients go to the bathroom. So at this point, certainly you can be concerned about some serious arrhythmias. You don't know if they're coming from the atrium or the ventricles, and all you know is that this patient is experiencing palpitations and a racing heart. She's otherwise healthy. She has no prior cardiac issues, nor a significant family history of the same. But more and more young, healthy females seem to be coming to the emergency department with complaints of racing heart, a lot of stress, right? We label it sometimes as being stressed, right? Because we don't find an answer. But there can be some real pathology there. And oftentimes, the workups that we do for these patients are negative. And when they're seen as outpatients with cardiologists or electrophysiologists, they oftentimes can't find anything either. So I urge you to call some of these patients later down the line. Keep a little notebook with their MR numbers. You know, a month later, say, hey, did you ever get follow-up? You know, what happened to you? What's going on? I love calling these patients back and being like, whatever happened to you? Um, but when we don't find stuff in the ER, you know, we we do 
refer to get, you know, other various testings. We look for, they, they look for odd stuff like a pheochromocytoma or potentially they check ANAs or other autoimmune disease issue stuff, but they might even go chasing that thyroid. So regardless of the workup that we do, plan, or the final diagnosis for this patient, it nags us to consider doing this observation admission or even an inpatient admission depending on the cardiology consult or availability. And many times I see cardiologists evaluating these patients, um, maybe in the ops, maybe even in the ER when they're still there if you're lucky, during uh, the normal, let's say they sometimes work from 11 to 1 with a two-hour break for lunch. <laughs> exactly. Right? So anyway, um, you know, we get repeat EKGs on these people, and uh, sometimes they might decide to slap on this new patch thing, this Sio patch. Uh, so in fact, let's talk about this patch. It's a very simple thing that could be a better way uh, to monitor arrhythmias compared to our old-fashioned Holter monitors. And that's according to the literature. So you know that I'm already going to bring this up. It's not just my opinion. You know, I don't work for these people. I've, I've never had one. I'm sure there's other companies that have different external ways to monitor the heart rate. Um, there's a lot of technology that can be used uh, in various departments across the country and probably the world. Um, but I'm familiar with this one, so I just wanted to use it as a reference, and it's becoming more popular. Okay. Well, um, what is this Zio patch? I've never heard of it before. We started prepping for this, uh, you know, podcast. It's a little patch that has a single lead, and you can, you know, place it, stick it to the chest of the patient. Um, it holds up pretty well. There's no like belt or clip required. There's not a lot of bunch of wires coming off this thing like you might have seen on a halter monitor. You can wear this thing while you're just living your life. You can sleep with it on. You can shower with it on. You can exercise with it on, and it records every little beat of your heart to be sent off to the cardiology suite. Yeah, so I was going to show the audience a picture here. I'm going to share my screen in a second. But basically, the website that talks about this monitoring system claims that it's a proven system to detect and diagnose irregular heart rhythms, and it's been prescribed to hundreds and thousands of patients with success. And I've checked the literature here. Um, I'm going to talk about those studies in a moment. Okay, cool. Well, the company also notes that the FDA has cleared the Zio system to monitor many different kinds of irregular heart rhythms. In the study they referenced, physicians were able to reach a diagnosis 90, 90% of the time with the Zio system. All right, so I'm sharing my screen here now. Now, Mike, are you able to see a picture here of, the Zio, of this little patch here on the chest? Yeah, so I'm yeah. seeing um, like a, a Google image, yeah. like search. Yeah, that this looks one, good. This one right here is probably a good example. You can see these other very toned chest down here. Look at all these wonderful looking chests of human beings. These people aren't having cardiac problems. What the heck? All right. Anyway, so you guys can do your own Google search. Take a look at these. We'll go ahead and stop sharing the screen here. So um, yeah, the, the study that I wanted to look at is this one by Barrett et al. in 2014 in the American Journal of Medicine. They looked at 146 patients who wore both the Holter monitor and this Psyopatch. So the results were that over the total wear time of both devices, the adhesive patch monitor detected 96 arrhythmia events compared to 61 arrhythmia events with the Holter monitor. Wow. Holy cow. Wow. So conclusion, over the total wear time of both devices, looking at them head-to-head, -head, you know how much I love a head-to-head -head study here, 
The adhesive Xiopatch here monitor detected more events than that Holzer monitor. So prolonged duration monitoring for the detection of arrhythmia events using a single lead, less obstructive adhesive patch monitoring platform could replace conventional Holzer monitoring. Holzer monitoring in patients referred to any ambulatory, you know, EKG monitoring. This is killer, killer, or should I say life-saving, life-saving. <laughs> right, the exact opposite. You know, so this little patch may be making more of an appearance in your OBS units or ERs. It's a great way to do ambulatory care, workup, treatments. Of course, there's always risks to any sort of intervention and testing you might want to do, false positives and the like. So this is always a discussion you want to have with a cardiologist. And if the patient warrants inpatient admission, then ask them if they have the technology available for them and, and consider that. You know, um, maybe if there's an elevated troponin or syncope or other concerning finding that maybe thinks suggest uh, that, that something bad is going on here. Uh, to note one other thing, here we go, I, I missed this here. Longer studies of the heart in general are better studies. There is a great systematic review of 22 papers we will have in the show notes. Those are always at twoview.fireside.fm. That is the number two, view.fireside.fm, that talks about this concept of a longer study being a better study and the Zio patch. The conclusion from that lit review Findings from the review suggest that long-term, continuous, uninterrupted monitoring with Zio results in longer patient wear times and higher cardiac arrhythmia detection rates compared to outcomes reported in previous reviews of shorter duration, and they define that short duration as 24 to 48 hours of cardiac rhythm recording studies. Right. So, you know, let's do this soup to nuts here, right? So I have, as Diane uh, Bierenbaumer likes to say, so you, I've seen people come in with this case. They, uh, we get a cardiology consult. Maybe we admit them to ops. Maybe we don't. Cardiology comes down, slaps one of these on, and the patient goes home. Now, that that's a, a very straightforward patient without a lot of underlying issues that doesn't need an inpatient admission. So I have seen it work. But speaking of long term, like you said, let's go real, real, real long term. I wanted to just briefly talk about this loop recorder situation. So this is taking cardiac monitoring to a whole new level. The loop is a small oval device. It's about the size of a paperclip. It's implanted in the chest, superficially under the skin. So it's not anywhere really near the heart. It's just superficially on the skin, um, usually on the left side, just above um, the breast tissue. Um, so this is basically something that monitors the heart rate 24-7. It can be left in for up to four years. It's incredibly accurate. Now, I'm not going to discuss a patient case in regards to the loop recorder uh, because this is really something that your cards or electrophysiologists will coordinate as an outpatient. And it's a trip to the OR and a half a day with a Medtronic rep and a million other little pieces, literally. So it's not an observation or ER thing. But let's talk the basics about it so you know what to do if you see one in the ER or urgent care because this is important. Okay, plenty, plenty of links in our show notes. You can check out some of these devices and be familiar with them. And that's, up, that's kind of a gap in my knowledge too. I talk about, you know, patients having palpitations and I kind of talk vaguely about, hey, go see a cardiologist. They'll put some sort of monitor on you. So this is great that I want to look at this stuff too to make sure I understand what kind of devices are out there. We're going to put up an image, a chest x-ray, so you can see what a loop recorder looks like. So in case you, you know, go ahead and shoot a chest x-ray and the patient forgets to tell you they have one, you're not like, um, what's going on here? What is this thing in this person's chest? 
Yeah. So here's some here's some good pictures, Mike. This is the this is the patient that says to you, "I don't have any medical problems. Nothing. Nothing's wrong with me." Right. And then they and then you say, "Well, do you take any medicines?" And they hand you that whole bag of like hypertension medicines, high cholesterol. Oh, and I have this implantable cardiac device for uh, my arrhythmia. So here's right. a good picture. These are this is from Radiology Assistant. This is a kind of a cool website. Are you familiar with this, Mike? Yeah, it's a good one. I like that one. Yeah, I like it. The pictures are phenomenal. So I just wanted to point out what some of these may look like. The newer ones, if you can see where I'm running my mouse, look more like this. This like paper clippy kind of flat, long shape here. So uh, that's just for reference, and we'll put that in the show notes. Cool. Okay. Well, of course, you're going to want to know if you're going to put this person into an MRI, if the device they've got is MRI compliant. Hopefully they know or they have a card with the more information about their device and their device rep. Um, so you can always call that rep. Um, they are usually uh, attached to a 24-hour hotline where someone can at least answer that basic of a question. The greatest thing about using one of these loop recorders is that because it's implanted under the skin and it's there for a long time, you can monitor the person's symptoms using an iPhone or other mobile device here. There's an app that the patient uses to report their symptoms as they're going along when they have them and record and monitor what's going on with their cardiac rhythm at the same time they're having symptoms. Uh, they don't have to do anything beyond that. If there's an abnormal rhythm, it is immediately reported and the patient either gets a phone call uh, or the cardiology team contacts the patient. So that's kind of cool. And, you know, if the patient's not feeling well, well, they'll probably be calling the cardiologist themselves or, or straight up going to the ER. But it's nice that, that, you know, there's that automatic sending of the information. Yeah, I think, you know, technology is great. It's absolutely fantastic. It's getting us to a lot of places. You know, and just to kind of end this segment, so now you guys know about these different um, arrhythmia monitoring systems, so you're not surprised when you see one on an X-ray or you, a patient tells you it's in their history. Like, you're just, hopefully, the more you know, right? So there's a lot of great literature regarding self-EKG monitoring. There's the Cardia device where you put your two fingers on. It attaches to your um, mobile device. There are tons. I'm also going to put a case study in the liner notes using an Apple Watch. So we often talk about medical advances in technology at our boot camps. I give a great lecture about this, um, and maybe we could post that as well. But basically, these Apple Watch rhythms, um, there's a lot of artifact that comes along with that. They're scary. Even I have been fooled by some of them where I'm like, huh, wait, okay, no, that looks that looks like artifact. But um, a lot of times, um, if they can get a good tracing on these watches, they might be life-saving. So for example, I put an, uh, a literature... Uh, finding here of a patient who had ventricular tachycardia using their Apple Watch. Patient was very lucky to catch it, Was uh, went to the ER, was seen, showed them the tracing, and saved that patient's life. Cool. So, yeah, um, again, liner notes all there for you, um, uh, and hopefully we can uh, take a look at that. And special thanks to Megan Dipple, who puts together our final liner notes. She's not here today, but um, we're very appreciative of her. Meg, we love you. So let's move <laughs> on to let's move on to Mike's segment here. All right, let's talk about strep throat. And when I talk about strep throat, I usually say that this is the reason why people get out of emergency medicine and urgent care. It's not the open fractures or the PEs or the MIs or the strokes or the weird stories. It's patients making a big deal about sore throat. But one source suggests it is the third most common complaint that brings patients in to see a clinician. 
Uh, at this point going on, a, you know, a year and a half of the COVID pandemic, maybe it's almost refreshing to have a URI patient with something that looks more like strep throat instead of COVID-19. Martha, when you see a new patient check in and the chief complaint flashes in your screen, sore throat, what goes through your mind? Ah, okay. Uh, is the airway painted? Is the patient talking? Also, I'm hungry. And did I shut the garage door before I left for work today? That's usually where my brain goes. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of uh, my, my ER attention span as well. Exactly. Well, you know, personally, I'm thrilled to see a chief complaint of sore throat come in the door. This is usually No, you're a not. You no, are not. No, I am. I for sure am. It, it had to. <laughs> it had to take kind of a, a paradigm, a mindset shift. Uh, and I'm big about mindset shifting here. I don't think it's just, you know, lip service. I really think that, that what we bring to the table in terms of our attitudes really can can frame and shape our day, our shift, uh, even every every patient encounter. Okay, but that was a little sidebar there. You know, these Sorry. sore throat patients usually are in and out. Usually, worst case, we are doing a little advanced imaging to look for like a separative complication. But usually, I can put my little polished script out there, reassure the patient or parent. And I personally, I'm rarely getting pushed to give antibiotics. That being said, I'm six foot one. I'm 260 pounds on a good day. So you know, I understand your mileage may vary on that one. Let's talk about how to handle these patients when you may be thinking strep throat. What else you should be thinking uh, and on the lookout for what you give these patients if you're not giving antibiotics, if you're even giving those, even with positive strep throats, and maybe a better way to handle these complaints in the age of metrics of COVID-19 and maybe even some ED overcrowding. Yeah, so Mike, you know, I work at the county hospital uh, down at Zuckerberg San Fran General, and I'll tell you that patients that come up with a sore throat, it's never just a sore throat. It's I also need my HIV medications, and I think my tooth is loose, and um, I'm having diarrhea, and I threw up blood this morning, and also my throat hurts, but also, um, yeah, I need a place to sleep. Anyway, I could go on and on and on. But the majority of the patients who present, okay, maybe not a county, right, with sore throat are having a viral infection. And they have a cough or a runny nose that further ups the odds of it being viral. But allergies and GERD are also possible reasons for their sore throat or irritation. Certain populations might also be prone to thrush, kids, people recently on antibiotics, people who use steroid inhalers, people who are immunocompromised, as I've already said. But not everyone who is immunocompromised knows they're immunocompromised, okay? That's... Sounds crazy, but it's true. So, though, if you see what looks like thrush in someone who isn't a high-risk population for thrush, it's probably time to start digging and refer to someone who will because sometimes these patients get uh, uvulitis and even um, other ulcers, and that's uh, more serious reasons for sore throat too. So peritonsillar abscess, retropharyngeal abscess, um, Ludwig's angina, mono, epiglottitis. And by the way, we did a great talk with Diane. I mentioned her again just because I'm in love with her. She, she knows that, but she's, <laughs> she didn't choose me. Um, as her life partner, uh, but we did a great show with her uh, a couple episodes back. And approaching a patient with epiglottitis is so, it's, oh man, it's just, it's almost heartfelt to your, to, to get the right answer for these patients because it can be life-threatening. Anyway, I digress. Yeah, epiglottitis is hard too because you look in the throat and you're like, it looks great, but they're clearly uncomfortable. So it's like, what do you do? What do you do with these patients? So we yeah. talk about that. That's episode seven. Check the show notes, and we'll have a link to that. 
Well, we're going to focus today on strep throat. This is caused by the bacterium Streptococcus pyogenes. It only causes about 1 in 10 sore throats in adults, but up to 20 or even 30% of sore throats in kids, depending on what studies you read. It's transmitted by respiratory droplets, saliva, and even nasal secretions. We've probably all learned about the four-point centaur criteria at this point, which is a very common way to risk stratify someone for possible strep throat. There's also the fever pain, um, you know, scoring system out of Great Britain. Uh, by the way, Martha, can I tell you about my brief brush with fame and Dr. Robert Centaur, please? Does it involve him showing you his throat? I signed paperwork that said I wouldn't to discuss that. But, you know, Dr. Centaur is still active in the medical world. He's on Twitter at MedRants, M-E-D-R-A-N-T-S, and he sent out a tweet one day asking for folks to review a project he was working on. So I jumped on the chance, and we got to interact very briefly. I think, personally, I would be even more insufferable than I already am if I was the originator of a, a risk stratification tool that everybody used every day. But he was very cordial and very thankful for my suggestions. So you guys are like BFFs now? Like, is this how it's going to be? <laughs> I'd probably just call him a close personal friend and leave it at that. No, I'm kidding. He's probably already forgotten about us talking on email. Uh, he's not like a good guy, though. Uh, meanwhile, I was able to get the emails printed, and they are, they are now very tastefully framed on my wall. Uh, right over there so yeah oh. it's very nice well, you don't frame anyways. any wait hold on you don't frame any of my emails what is happening here there's just so many it's a, I, I have to, no, it's true it's a, framing costs a lot okay i'm only getting one email from robert centaur i get emails from you all the time okay well anyways <laughs> from for undifferentiated sore throat i'm thinking about the centaur criteria and i'm asking and looking specifically for these four point criteria number one fever greater than 100.4 degrees fahrenheit number two tonsil swelling or exudate number three tender or swollen anterior cervical lymph nodes and number four the absence of cough a sore throat without a cough makes strep more likely each one of these things is worth one point when you're assessing the centaur criteria something i learned about after i graduated was called the modified centaur criteria or the mcisaac criteria i'm adding one point with this modified criteria, one point additionally for patients between the ages of 3 to 14. And if someone is 45 years or older, they actually get docked a point because of the lower likelihood of strep throat in that age population. All right. You know, people complain that after you get your license at 16, you can, you can drink at 21. There aren't really any big age milestones until you hit 50. But maybe this is it at 45 you lose a point on your McIsaac criteria. Huh. All right. Well, the original Centaur criteria and the McIsaac criteria are a lot more powerful as negative predictors. If you have a negative 1 or 0, your chance of having strep is less than 2.5%. And if you score a 1, your chance is less than 5 to 10%. Where people differ the most, I think, is what you do when someone has a very high score, 3, 4, even 5 Martha, what's your approach here? Let's say the patient does not have a known close contact for strep because, frankly, some of those people, if they, they know, like, my kid is sick in the house with strep and I've got strep symptoms, I'm usually just going ahead and treating those folks because I feel like at that point, the kind of pretest probability is just so high, you know? But what do you do with these patients who don't have a close contact with strep? They have a 3 to 5 on the Centaur or McIsaac score. What do you do? Do you treat empirically or do you even do you test them? 
So you have to remember again where I work. So I test, I do probably do more testing because of where I work. Um, yeah, so I, I'm more prone to that, but I don't want to ignore the literature and the data here either. Well, I think the literature is frankly mixed, you know, and, and literature and also expert opinion is kind of mixed here. I personally also like to test these folks too. Even when you get up into the high scores, three through five, we're still only talking about maybe a 55% chance of having strep throat. That's a coin flip. But Dr. Sensor advises to treat empirically when you hit four. Yeah. Well, his thoughts, which you can read um, at one of our favorite websites, MD Calc, are that there are other kinds of strep out there classified as Lancefield Group C and Group G strep. Um, strep pyrogenes is considered Lancefield Group A, as well as the Fusobacterium necroforum, which is, again, thanks for giving me the hard ones to pronounce I this month. I should have told you about this before. I feel really bad. <laughs> yeah, well, that's all right. I Luckily, I know this, okay? Yeah. So, <laughs> okay, but anyway... Um, the fuso, uh, the fusobacterium, uh, is a bacteria that can cause two of the bad sore throats, um, like, uh, Lemire's syndrome or Ludwig's right. angina. So, um, Mike, we've got a pretty good depth on strep throat, but let's talk turkey. Um, what are you telling these people who are coming to the emergency department for sore throats? By the way, I'm hungry. That sounds great. <laughs> well, I want to do what's effective in terms of doing the right thing for this patient. Uh, I, how I feel about taking care of my fifth sore throat of the day um, really can't enter the equation, especially when I've got, you know, all those sick patients. I, I can't think about that. Uh, I want to do what's best for the patient and best for the department. My approach is to start validating their suffering, suffering rather, meeting them where they're at. Clearly, they are worried to some degree, even if they come in pretty calm and collected here, they left their house during a pandemic and came to your emergency department or urgent care. They, they care at least somewhat. Yeah. You know, so maybe this podcast title should have been like case studies for anxious people, right? <laughs> um, by the way, there's this great poetry book that's called love poems for anxious people. If any, it's on the New York times bestseller. It's phenomenally <laughs> hilarious. If anybody wants something fun to read, um, but you know how I always like to interject um, and kind of go off script for these things. It's like, don't be a jerk to these patients. Don't say things to them like, hey, uh, don't you know there's a pandemic coming on and going on here? Like, don't, what are you coming in here for a sore throat? Like, look, you have just don't be an asshole, okay? Oh, wait. Oh, shoot. Shoot. I hope that doesn't. We can edit that in post, I'm sure. Dave, I think you marked that time yeah. code. Sorry about that. Anyway, look, it's just something that, uh, quite frankly, I don't have time for when people act like that. So be a, be a good uh, soul here. So, right, any sort of minimizing or reassuring out of the gate, like I said, oh, a sore throat, is that it runs the risk of being perceived as you are not taking their complaints seriously. And if they didn't check their temperature before they came in, and if they've only been sick for like two hours, and if they didn't even try to self-treat beforehand, um, you know, just just listen. Be that kind person. And then that's when you establish this rapport, this bedside manner, this this relationship that you have to be good at. If you're not good at this, you need to find another job, okay? But most jobs require this technique. Um, but anyway, I like to earn people's trust and I don't like to make people feel stupid because that doesn't do anything for me, right? Yeah, I, you know, 
I totally agree. Like we are in the business of quickly establishing trust. And then once that trust is established, then we can, you know, take the next step here. Um, and so we have to kind of do that first. When it comes to the physical exam, I'm talking out loud about what I see and I feel. And even if their throat looks amazing, I will at least say that I do see a little red in their throat. I mean, I'm not lying. Everyone's throat is red because if I say something like ah, looks fine to me or looks normal, yeah, I think a lot of people, their first reaction to that is, hey, man, uh, I'm not feeling well. I'm not feeling fine or normal. So don't tell me it looks fine or normal. So I validate even with the good looking throat. By that point, I've validated their history. I've validated them by doing my physical exam in a, you know, brisk, but also thorough way. So I feel like at this point, I can kind of round the turn for home plate here. I can say, well, you know, well, wow, but you know what? Your tonsils actually look really good. Like, do you even have tonsils still? You do? Wow. Well, the good news is the tonsils don't look enlarged. They're not covered in pus. And I talk about what else I see in them and what I don't see that suggests strep throat or not. If the patient has a one or less on the Centaur or McIsaac criteria, I tell the patient, hey, you've got a very low chance for a strep throat. If they really press me on it, I give them the numbers, the percentages we talked about, but I don't usually offer that up front. And then I say, if you were my, fill in the blank for whatever works for you, my son, my daughter, my wife, my husband, mom or dad, I wouldn't even advise you to get tested right now for a strep. The odds are so low. And then I say something like, well, but if you came here for the strep test, I will happily do that. But my personal advice is here. I think we can skip that for today. And if I think I can get them to buy in, I don't even test them because there's always a chance of a false positive test. But okay. since they're here, what I'd love to do when I tell them this, I'd love to give you a steroid. You can give the IV formulation of dexamethasone in some sort of a sweet drink, like a Gatorade or a juice. That's very well absorbed by the stomach. It's helpful in rapidly relieving sore throats of all kinds of viral and bacterial. And I emphasize to them that this is something they can't buy over the counter. I'm showing them, hey, look, you, you know, you know you're not getting a strep test and you're not getting antibiotics, but you are getting something of value for your visit here. If there is a cough, which is pretty common, honestly, with sore throat complaints, I can also prescribe benzonitate. In addition to recommending all the different OTCs, you know, and I emphasize again that this is a prescription cough medication, right? Benzonitate, you can't buy that over the counter. They may not need it, but in case the over-the-counters don't do it, I'm happy to give them a second option. I think also this backup plan idea is helpful as well because what's a standard question we've all gotten before? Well, what if I leave here and I get worse? <laughs> and you want to be like, well, medicine's full of uncertainty, and yeah, you might get worse. But I think it's important to counsel them that if they are worse, they should return. But if you give them a plan and then a backup plan, most folks usually aren't thinking all the way through to a plan C. Often a plan A and a backup plan is enough. I like that. You're very insightful today, Mike. This was all really good <laughs> As info. opposed to usual. Yeah. Well, anyway. But that covers the low-risk patients for strep. I don't know about where you work, but at some places I've worked, they need to stop calling it a rapid strep test. No one thinks an hour or more for a strep test is rapid. But a lot of places have to send these down to the lab to get done. And now you've got this patient sitting in the waiting room or in the emergency department 
And, you know, I don't know what's worse, someone taking up a bed for over an hour for a strep test or someone sitting in a COVID-infested waiting room. You mentioned you were handling these patients a little differently nowadays. Yeah, uh, we just got a pretty solid e-prescribing system in our EMR now. So if someone needs a strep throat test and that's it, I'm making sure I know their phone number and preferred pharmacy, and I'm telling them that, hey, if you're okay with this, I'm just going to discharge you right now, and I'm going to follow up by phone with the results here. I'm doing the same thing for simple cystitis, like urinary uh, tract infection, bladder infection, RSV tests, stuff like that. If I can knock an hour off of someone's stay, I'm doing it. And even if your workflow is following up the next morning, and they don't get antibiotics until then, that's fine for a lot of these simple tests in well-appearing patients, especially in the case of strep throat, we're giving antibiotics solely for the purpose of preventing rheumatic fever. That's why we treat strep throat so aggressively here. Strep sore throat, the sore throat of it, it gets better on its own regardless of whether they get antibiotics or not. Antibiotics only knock a day or two off of the symptom, uh, you know, length. Um, we can give antibiotics as late as day nine in the course of a strep throat and so prevent the rare case of rheumatic fever. And it's rare. Yeah, but, you know, not just the rheumatic fever stuff. I mean, strep is annoying. It's uh, cumbersome. It's painful. Um, it can lead to other things. It can cause abscesses. It can, you know, these are rare things. But, I mean, it it's not a nothing. Yes, I agree with you that most likely it will get better on its own. But, I mean, a high-risk patient or something like that, I just want our listeners to know that, if you really feel the pressing need um, to give an antibiotic for a very specific patient, you know, we give you guidelines, right? We don't tell you the end-all be-all. This is what you have to do. Um, use your brain to think about these patients, of course. Um, but we're also going to post a really interesting scenario um, from the emdoc, uh, uh, the emdocs.net. Is that what it is? emdocs.net yep. website on our show notes. And it compares how rare rheumatic fever is to relatively how much more common anaphylaxis is to penicillin. So they're not talking about all the other adverse effects of antibiotic use. They're purely using anaphylaxis. And I think it'll make you think twice about being willy-nilly about giving antibiotics for a sore throat. It's funny you mention, yeah, yeah, no, totally. Uh, You know, it's funny you mention the the separative complications. I kind of hinted at that at the start of this, right? You know, your RPA, your PTA, but there's been some interesting studies, which again, show notes, twoview.fireside.fm. What they're saying is that a lot of these people, their first presentation is they have the RPA or the PTA. It's, It's more rare, relatively, to have someone have strep throat show up not get treated or whatever, and then they go on to have the abscess. These abscesses spring up very quickly. And so, um, you know, the literature, we talk about the literature here, literature shows that we're not um, seeing more separative complications in patients who aren't getting treated for with antibiotics here. Okay, so, a lot, man, we could really, like... <laughs> How much time do we have about talking about strep throat here? We can talk way more about strep throat here. There's plenty more to talk about. We're going to leave the rest of it in our show notes as well. And a lot of folks are like, why would you go on about strep throat? But look, this is a very common complaint. You heard the third most common complaint and concern. I think with things we do super commonly, whether it's medications or complaints, we need to be able to go next level and really know what we're doing here and why. Yeah. Awesome. I'm glad we did that. You know, there's always something to learn. 
whether it be about the way you practice care or, you know, medication delivery or any kind of criteria. But, you know, we're actually going to end this segment. We're keeping things kind of short this month. We don't have any specific guest interviewer, um, excuse me, interviewee, which we will have on the next episode. We're not going to um, let you know who it is quite yet, but we do have uh, someone in, in the works coming on the show that we know you'll love. But let's get to our final segment here, segment three here. We're going to talk about hyperthyroidism and TSH. Again, another anxious patient, anxious patient uh, story here. I want to first just discuss what a TSH is. And we hinted at the beginning that we were going to go into this. Now, if you are listening and you're like, I'm tired, I don't want to get nerdy, and I, I really can't think about the endocrine system yet. Like, I get it. This is kind of heavy for the last topic. But hang in there. We're going to break it down super easy. Um, we want to know what kind of information we can glean from a TSH. What does it have to do or not have to do with hypo or hyperthyroidism? How expensive is it to order? And then you need to decide whether or not we should keep ordering it from the ER or even urgent care or send out. I mean, there are all good questions that we can ask in regards to ordering this test. Um, but there are good questions to ask, uh, in general yourself when you order any test, whether it be a CBC, a BMP, even a pregnancy test, right? So you have to think about why you order an order. Yeah, we so reflexively order like someone comes in with something beyond a stub toe, CBC, CMP, right? You know, and like it was upper abdominal pain, throw that lipase in there too. So yeah, we are very quick to order some of these tests. But uh, I like, you know, the, some of my doctors and uh, colleagues, other PAs and NPs practice, they're a little more discriminating in what they order. I'm trying to get that same way as well. Okay. Yeah, you know, actually, just one quick side note. Um, yeah. Rick Pescator, one of my very good friends for a very long time, we worked on EM News together, and we, we of course, are faculty partners. Um, he, he used to um, do a podcast with me as well, um, but he was just, he said something the other day about how gratifying it is to see a truly uh, musculoskeletal chest pain and, and see the patient, do a physical exam, get a good history, and send that patient home without any tests. Like, that was really cool and inspiring. It's like, he's a great doctor. Um, and, and I wish that I could work with him every day. So shout out to Rick uh, Pescator. Uh, but yeah, you can see and do things for patients without ordering a test. But let's go on to talk about the TSH because we're ordering this test. <laughs> right. Okay. In this case, we're ordering it, right? So TSH, of course, stands for thyroid stimulating hormone. It is a blood test we can draw, usually a gold top in case someone asks you, that measures this hormone. Uh, we all know the thyroid gland in our neck makes these hormones that regulate the way our body uses energy, the metabolism. Um, there is a link from UCLA that breaks this down really well. If you want to go like, you know, nerd upon nerd level here, we posted that review for you in the show notes. But let's just start with the basics here. Yeah, I mean, we, we all know that you guys know uh, the, the fundamentals of of the endocrine system. We got that. But I really like to review some of the pathophys about these things occasionally, just, just to really put the whole picture together. And then some random trivia. It's like, who the heck cares about a gold top, right? Well, gold tops, really fascinating. They have a serum separator, an SST, and that's like a gel that's at the bottom. You notice when you pick up the gold top, it has the gel, right? So most chemistry, endocrine, and serology tests go in here, including hepatitis and HIV. But the SST has this gel that separates the blood cells from um, the rest of the serum in the centrifuge. So the clear stuff goes on the top and the dense stuff goes on the bottom. So if you start to think about like what tests go into what tube, like I don't know. I just feel smarter when I'm able to like be like, oh no, 
that needs an SSTHL separator, right? So cool story. Well, yeah, I, and, and the obverse is I feel really dumb when I order a special <laughs> test and the nurse is like, what tube do I use for that? And I'm just like, uh, yeah, man, I don't know. <laughs> Call the lab, please. Okay, I, I just ordered the tests around here. So, okay, well, you know, we can't talk about normal TSH levels without mentioning good old T3 and T4. Let's get nerdy. Thyroid hormone in general exists in two main forms thyroxine, which is T4, and triiodothyronine, which is T3. Nailed it, by the way. T4 is the primary form of thyroid hormone circulating in the blood, about 95%. To exert its effects, T4 is converted to T3 by, I can say triiodothyronine, but I can't say T3. That makes sense. <laughs> by the removal of an iodine atom. This occurs mainly in the liver and in certain tissues where T3 acts, like in the brain. T3 normally accounts for about 5% of thyroid hormone circulating in the blood. Yeah, so all these things are super important to put the big picture together, like especially if you have like a weird diagnosis. If you remember how these things work, what they do, what they are, um, the fact that you should um, see more T4 than uh, than T3, and I, I have a great picture that I'm going to share, a great infographic that explains all this. It really helps you think about what else could be wrong with this patient? Um, but most thyroid hormone in the blood is bound to protein. And while only a small fraction is free to enter the tissue um, and have a biologic effect, and thyroid tests may measure the total protein bound and free or free hormone levels, production of thyroid hormone by the thyroid gland is controlled by the pituitary. Um, and this pituitary releases the TSH into the blood to stimulate the thyroid to make more thyroid hormone, um, the T3 and the T4. So the amount of TSH that the pituitary sends to the bloodstream depends on the amount of thyroid hormone in the body. So again, when I just say thyroid hormone, we're just talking T3 and T4. The TSH mm. is the signal part, right? So like a thermostat, if the pituitary senses low thyroid hormone, then it produces more TSH to tell the thyroid gland to produce more thyroid hormone. And then once um, the T4 gets in the blood, the pituitary production and the TSH is shut off in a normal person. But this is that negative feedback system that we learn about in school, right? So in this way, the pituitary can basically sense and control everything that's going on with your thyroid hormone. Well, I always remembered from endocrinology, the best way to start testing thyroid function is to measure TSH. So, but how would we do that in the ER? When would we do that? I've, I've taken care of patients where like, you know, I order these tests and I kind of check in with a supervising collaborating doc. And uh, sometimes uh, the doc will be like, hey, why don't you throw a TSH in there too? And uh, in my head, I'm like, yeah, of course, sure. And then you know, mentally I'm like, why? But yeah. all right, whatever. I'll go ahead and do it, you know, because he asked for it for sure. Okay, so how do we interpret the TSH? What are some times we really need to order a TSH? Right, and for our listeners, it's so important that we think about why we're ordering a test and what are we going to accomplish by it. But these are all great questions, right? I want to try to answer it in a few parts. So first, the cost of the test can be anywhere from this kind of bizarre range of $10 to $90, depending on the lab. I think it's $12 at the general. It's not wildly expensive. And it's a test that's easy to do. It's non-invasive. It may yield some data. It may not. It depends on the patient complaint and your department, as well as what we will do with a high or low finding. I'm going to explain, well, actually, you're going to explain in a second the high and low findings. But, excuse me, let's apply the TSH to our patient from segment one, the arrhythmia oh. patient. Should I order a TSH in this patient? And my answer is, it depends, but why not? 
It's an easy test to do and as I said, may yield some results or answers. Not all the answers, but if their TSH and T3, T4 is all out of whack, could we have an answer? Why, yes we could, Sherlock. <laughs> well, let's stop for a second, Holmes, and, and talk about normal values. Just we know what we're looking for there. All right, sure. So remind the peeps, and um, then I'll go on with the nerdiness. All righty. TSH normal values are between 0.5 to 5, 0.5 to 5.0. Pregnancy, a history of thyroid cancer, history of pituitary gland disease, and older age are some situations where your TSH may get a little bit out of whack. Free T4 normal values are between 0.7 to 1.9 nanograms per deciliter. Individuals taking medications that modify thyroid hormone metabolism and those with a history of thyroid cancer or pituitary disease may be optimally managed as long as you can get them, uh, oh, sorry, with a different normal free T4 range. So because they have diseases, you might want to put them at a different level. Uh, but for a, a person who is not being managed, especially here, 0.7 to 1.9 is where you want to be. Yeah, sometimes we make um, exceptions for the normal levels of T4 in these um, special population cases. So make sure you really know that history. That's really important. Okay, cool. Total T4 and total T3 levels measure bound and free thyroid hormones. So you, you usually have an option to get free or total, right? So I'm differentiating that between free and total. If you order the total T4 and total T3 levels, those measure the bound and the free thyroid hormone in the blood. These levels are influenced by lots of factors that affect protein levels in the body, including medications, sex hormones, and liver disease. A normal total T4 level in adults ranges from 5 to 12, and normal total T3 level in adults ranges from 80 to 220. All right, so with this information in our back pocket, we can use this test to help us make a diagnosis sometimes. So a high T, I'm going to just, I'm going to try to break this down, and I think if you just do a, a little refresher, you, you need this in your life, okay? A high, T, a high TSH, every time I think, okay, so again, if you're watching this on the podcast, this is the motion I make when I talk about endocrine disease, like this. Okay, one hand's going up, one hand's going down, because something has to go up for something to go down and vice versa. It's this negative feedback system, They're like a little dance, right? Okay, so that one was for Dave. So a high TSH level indicates that the thyroid gland is not making enough thyroid hormone. This is primary hypothyroidism, hypo, right? So could be one of your zebra things uh, also, but we're going to stick with just primary hypothyroidism, high TSH and low thyroid hormone. We can answer some of these questions in the ER for sure. We know something's going on with the endocrine system. On the other hand, a low TSH usually indicates that the thyroid is producing too much thyroid hormone, hyperthyroidism, which yes, we can also diagnose, treat, and worry about in the ER. So occasionally a low TSH may result from an abnormality like we talked about in the pituitary gland um, or potentially uh, central hypothyroidism like a tumor on the pituitary. But if you catch that diagnosis, kudos to you. Wow, that's pretty awesome. So when you look at the T4 test, it can be abnormal for a few reasons. Keep in mind that I put this on my cheat sheet. Importantly, that the total T4 levels are affected by medications and um, lots of other things like estrogens, contraceptives, pregnancy, liver disease, 
hepatitis C. Um, all these things can, can change the total T4 like we sort of hinted to before. And anytime you have a pregnant patient, get that TSH. Just do it reflexively because OBGYN is going to want it. No big deal, right? Just like they want LFTs and multiple blood pressure readings, right? <laughs> so as far as the T3 goes, this is important, the T3, for those with Graves' disease. Now, again, you might have a patient that knows they have Graves' disease, but if you are able to make this diagnosis, wow, again, not necessarily part of our jobs, but I don't like to say that phrase at any point in my career. It's they're there. I can figure it out. It can it can be my job today. Right. Well, you really do need to understand the T4 and T3 in the ER because they all mean important things. And if you're going to order that test, you better first know what they do. You know, that's a lesson we didn't really cover earlier. Don't be ordering TSHs in general if you don't know what the answers mean don't know what to do if the values are abnormal or can't tell the patients the results. Like, you know, we mentioned, you know, drawing labs for urgent care and, oh, that's like pet peeve of mine. You know, like either you send the patient to the ER if they need to know the result today or don't draw a lab from urgent care and send it out, okay? Tell the person, find out where they can follow up uh, in your area, figure out where the different federally qualified health centers are. So they don't have insurance, no problem. You can go to this, you know, place that's designed for folks that are to, to serve people without insurance here. Figure out where they can go to get those lab tests that are not um, as urgent, that don't need to be drawn in an urgent care setting. Tell them they can get their gonorrhea and chlamydia tests there too, right? So. <laughs> right, exactly. Now nah, we do it all. We're happy to do those as well. Anyway, um, let's let's end with the meat of the matter here, okay? This is primary hyperthyroidism and Graves' disease. A low TSH and a high thyroid hormone level, this high T4 or T3, can indicate primary hyperthyroidism. And we already discussed the difference of what makes that the way that it is. So symptoms, though, right? These symptoms of hyperthyroidism can include these tremors, palpitations, restlessness, anxiety, feeling warm, frequent bowel movements, interrupted sleep, unintentional weight loss. Could our young female in the case study we presented earlier have Graves' disease? Maybe, but, you know, there are other causes of hyperthyroidism. You could have um, a thyroid nodule or um, a goiter, or you could have thyroid inflammation, thyroiditis, which is a great topic that we don't have time to talk about today, but just absolutely fantastic, fascinating disease um, and terrible for the patient. Um, you could have uh, some kind of thyroid gland dysfunction due to a medication. Amiodarone is a big one. Or they might have cancer immunotherapy drugs. Um, and of course, any excessive thyroid hormone therapy. So early, mild hyperthyroidism may present with this persistently low TSH, right? So you've got this low TSH, and then you test for the free T4 um, and T3, and you find that they're super high. So there you go. That's a great diagnosis to come across. So let's end with discussing um, what and if a patient case like this comes in, like we talked about this fast heart rate, let's say, let's just say that the TSH wasn't done because you're working with someone that day that's like, I don't believe in TSHs. That's an outpatient test, right? <laughs> I mean, some people do say that, which has been our whole argument here um, from the beginning of just bringing this up. Let's just say that she, she ended up going out um, and getting her TSH test and she got all these results and she saw endocrinology and was diagnosed with Graves' disease. And that was my patient, actually, Mike. Um, I was told, uh, I sort of changed the case around in the beginning, if you remember me talking about it. But really what happened was that I was having an argument with someone about doing TSHs and that attending didn't want me to do it. 
didn't think it was necessary. And I said, you know, okay, that's fine. We don't have to do it. I personally, um, like I said, uh, it's a non-invasive test and it would have given us a lot of information and we would have potentially found this diagnosis for her. And that's fine. I called her, found out what was going on. And, you know, it's, again, you might debate with someone um, about all that, but uh, I'm just, I'm going to, I'm going to skip this segment, Mike, where we just sort of talk about all this other nerdiness that no one's going to care about in the last five minutes of the podcast. I Martha, think every- I care. I yeah. care. <laughs> I know. I'm listening. Yeah, but maybe you could just, um, we could sum up here just reminding people of those symptoms to look for, because if we get that common picture yeah. of what, you know, you're not going to miss Graves' disease, and you can pitch this, like, you know, my patient didn't look super ill, but you could pitch this diagnosis to your attending and say, hey, you know, this patient has blah. What do you think about adding a TSH? And they and once you say those things, they might be like, oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, cause, you know, like some of the common signs and symptoms, right, like anxiety and just kind of feeling off. I mean, how many times do we get that in the emergency department? But then ask the next questions. Hey, do you have or let me see your hands. Can I? Is there a tremor going on? Are you having any sort of heat sensitivity, maybe sweating more than usual? Are you having unexplained weight loss? Do you have, can I see your neck a little bit? Do you have an enlargement of the thyroid gland, a goiter or a nodule going on there? Is anything wrong with your menstrual cycles? Are they different recently? Is there a change in your erectile uh, you know, satisfaction? Is your libido changed? Are you having more frequent bowel movements? You'll probably see any like, uh, you know, graves a bulging eyes, the ophthalmopathy here across the room, but you can ask if they've noticed that. Maybe more tired than usual. You might even kind of look at their legs and look for the graves dermopathy here, that thick red skin, usually on the shins or the feet here. Uh, maybe they've got that palpitations that often goes along with the anxiety and ask how their sleep's doing. So those are all things you can kind of look for when you get that classic, like, I'm having palpitations, I feel anxious. We get that a lot. Often the workup is kind of like non-diagnostic in the ED. But what if we threw a, an extra TSH in there once in a while? You know, uh, we talk about this in the advanced course about the anxious patient and how, you know, t- tips and tricks to try to get information and and uh, communicate with them. And one of my favorite tests to do for a patient when they're anxious just in general, and this may help you, um, is lay the patient down, okay? Now, uh, if you lay, if a patient seems really anxious, you ask them to lie down. I'm talking supine for their exam. And typically, their anxiety after a couple deep breaths, their heart rate will normalize a little bit. Um, their breathing will become more relaxed because the natural thing for the body to do when it's supine is to relax. So um, if my patient is there and they say they're short of breath and they're there because um, – they're anxious or they're really short of breath. I mean, people who are anxious are short of breath because they're hyperventilating. If I lay them down, someone who truly has some pathology, typically I found, this is just my own personal experience, they got to sit right back up. They can't lay flat because they're Mm. obstructed for some reason. So try my lay down test, okay? I think everyone should be flat and supine for a physical exam for most parts of it because I'm old school. But again, um, I weigh heavy on the physical exam. Health assessment is my favorite thing to do. That's how we get to 90% of our diagnoses. But in this conversation today, yeah, I would conclude that a TSH test is okay to order in the right patient. 
It's not that expensive. It could yield an answer. It's non-invasive. Consider it the next time you have a patient with a weird complaint that doesn't make sense or any of the things that Mike talked about a few seconds ago. Well, let's wrap it with something sweet. We're going to end with just some cool things we're seeing out there in the medical universe here. Martha, you're going to go first with some books. Yeah, okay. So I feel even more of a nerd. <laughs> okay, but what I do want to say, Mike, is that I love books. I've been using books to teach and learn even though I know that I can get these things on medical apps um, and uh, – uh, the Kindle and things like that. But I just love something about having the books in my library. And I see you have quite a few yourself. I'm just going to point out a couple because listeners are always like, I need this. I need that. I find I need this reference. So I pulled out some of my favorites that I've been using for 20 years. Um, some of them newer, uh, like the paint. This first one, this is the uh, EMRA pain management guide. And we yes. will, po will post the in the liner notes, we'll post the show that we did last year with um, Sergei Motov. It's a great book. He's one of the co-editors. I mean, I'm speechless from it. It helps me every single day. Uh, and actually, let me just take a look at the YouTube section here. If anybody is here and wants to win a free copy of this, um, you could tell me, take a guess at what star sign I am, and we'll see if we can give you a, a free copy. <laughs> if, you're at all, if you're at all close, then I'll give you one. The next book I wanted to point out, and again, a lot of these you can get on the apps, the Amazon app. Um, Inkling is another book app, uh, and many of them have their own access code that you can get to look at it as well. So this next one, it's called Practical Plastic Surgery for Non-Surgeons. Huh. This is um, by Nadine uh, Seamers. She's a physician that wrote this book, and it, it breaks a lot of things down on suturing, really cool techniques. I love the way that the book is put together. She talks a lot about different types of dressings. There's some um, sketches as well. She talks about um, how to go through, I know it's hard to see on the YouTube, but basically how to approach any, uh, any lack or something you need to repair. I mean, there's finger stuff, nails, tendons. I love it. I love going to it. That's cool. The other one is the Merck Manual. I've been a fan of Merck for a long time. This is uh, the Merck Manual uh, Patient Symptoms. And it literally, it's a super concise practical guide uh, for the etiology evaluation and the treatment of anything. Like that's what they say and that's what it does. So basically, for example, like a very short something on dyspnea, you know, some things to consider, some things not to forget. Again, you could get this from a ton of different apps. I realize that, but I like this source. It's trusted. I like it. I have a few others, but let me end with um, two of my go-tos that I have on my desk at every job. Um, one, we're working on the new edition of uh, Robertson Hedges. This yes. is the procedural Bible. We have a ton of videos if you go to the YouTube site on the proceduralist, um, formerly the procedural pause for emergency medicine news. You can check out a lot of our columns. I, we've done hundreds of columns on different procedures. Just look us up. You can find them. And then lastly, I will never go a shift ever without carrying this book with me. I have a couple copies of it. This is my Atlas of Human Anatomy. It's uh, Netter's book. You carry me, that to the ER? Every day. That's a big one. Now, let me tell you why. I know it is a big one. Um, I've used this book so many times to explain to a patient what's wrong with them. So uh. they're like, uh, 
what do you mean I have spondylolisthesis or uh, what do you mean I have a Bell's palsy and I bring up a picture of their nose and the nerves or their skull or something it doesn't matter something cool some body part and I point to it and I say look look right here you have a torn meniscus probably and this is a picture of a brain that I'm showing you but <laughs> this is unrelated but still it's cool isn't unrelated it? yeah. so All I right. love I love showing patients and then also you know for my own referral like here's like the anatomy of the hand I know this is like I feel like I'm getting crazy and too excited but like, yeah, I want to remember things about about the body, and you can't remember everything. Right. Okay. I got way too excited during this podcast, Mike. I need a sedative. Do you roll into the ER with like one of those rolling crates, like teachers <laughs> carry? No comment. Okay. All right. Well, look. Well, my something sweet this month is that our podcast is going to probably get published right in time for the first ever National Advanced Practice. Provider Week. This is the inaugural one. You can read more about this at www.nationalappweek.com. But here's what this week is about, according to the website. National Advanced Practice Provider Week honors the contribution of various APPs, including physician associates slash assistants, nurse practitioners, CRNAs, uh, clinical nurse specialists, and certified nurse midwives. This important group of providers elevates the fields of medicine and nursing to ensure our most vulnerable populations receive high-quality, evidence-based care. We utilize this week to celebrate the hard work of these professionals and to raise awareness of their unique roles in healthcare. Coming right on the heels, by the way, of PA Week. That's coming up, I think, tomorrow is the first day of PA Week. So we're going to like roll right into APP Week two weeks back to back for us that's kind of cool martha what do you think this is kind of a a brand new thing like i'm saying here sounds great i gotta send you a fruit basket so there (laughs) there are a lot of resources about national app week at that website so um including actually scheduled events there's some flyers and some social media banners and some swag so check it out at uh www.nationalappweek all one word dot com national app week Dot com. All right. Well, let's get to our two view trivia answer for the podcast, and then we'll go to our question. Last month, we asked you during what war were Americans urged to save what kind of food fat so it could be used in the manufacture of bombs? And the answer was World War II and everyone's favorite food fat, bacon. Yep. Boom. And the winner. Do you want to do the winner? I'll do the winner. Sorry, okay, I was lo- I was looking at the um, the comments section, and everybody's trying to guess my star sign. They could not be more wrong. Do you even know anything about astrology? You should do like a um, Price is Right rules, like just closest but not over kind of a thing. Oh we'll see gosh. if that works out. Let's just say that I'm also very stubborn when I need to be, okay? And it's legit, and I'm a ram. All right, but anyway, our winner, and he was so confident – was David Michelson. He's a PA. Uh, I've already contacted you, David, but congratulations. Good for you. Nice um, job. Yep. And what? tell the viewers what we can give them this month. Uh, it's pretty cool, actually. Yes. We have an upcoming boot camp this year. It is November. It's next month. Holy cow. Okay. It's still probably not too late to clear your schedule and come join us at the Paris Hotel Las Vegas, Nevada. If you get this question right, you will win a 
free trip. Well, I take it back. A free registration and attendance. November 15th through 19th, that is, uh, there's a procedures course, a farm course, a boot camp, ultrasound course. Um, you can get any one of those courses live or virtual streaming here through the Center for Medical Education. But come see us in Vegas, okay? Forget all that streaming stuff, okay? We're 18 months in the pandemic. Come hang out with us. We got our vaccinations. You should too. Come hang out. Have a good time with us. You can give it to a friend. You can use it for your own CME, whatever, okay? Not telling you how you live your life. So here is the question, Martha. Okay, here we go. I always feel like we should have music to this part, but whatever. <laughs> uh, the initial study that was published in 1950 about how treating strep throat prevents rheumatic fever in which branch of the military service who were located at what base? Yeah, I kind of hosed that question a little bit. But yeah, this was a military study, and so these recruits – um, what branch service were they in? What base were they in when this study happened? Okay, so email us your guesses at twoviewcast at gmail.com. That's the number twoviewcast at gmail.com. And tell us who you want to give a shout out to. Before we wrap, we better. Oh, you picked it. Brigitte Murphy. All right, Brigitte. Yeah, you were the first one to uh, yeah. ring in on the chat here. I think it, I totally agree. Brigitte gets the pain guide. Nailed it. We I love her. Good, she's she's a good soul. She's she's been a good fan and a good friend to the to the group. So yes, thank you so much. I believe she um, still runs the uh, that nurse practitioner Facebook page that has like twenty thousand followers. The so. newbies, right? Nurse practitioner yeah. newbies. Yeah. Shout she's, out to nurse practitioner newbies, by the way. She's an, a cool gal. So shout out to to all y'all. All right. So all right, and we're gonna end. That's it. Let's do it. Uh, let's do it. So for more information or to give us your feedback, you can email us at twoviewcast at gmail.com. You can visit our faculty site featuring all our upcoming courses that we spoke about, www.ccme.org. And you could also come in to uh, consider seeing us in November in Las Vegas, like we talked about, the 15th through the 19th for all the great things that we have going on. Get a home study course, a farm course, a heart course, an EKG course, imaging course, boot camp. It's all at ccme.org. Right. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of The Two View. Thank you, all you YouTubers. We had a lot of folks kind of ringing in. Like, they were kind of quiet through the main talk. But once we started trying to guess your sign, that's when a lot of folks kind of came out of the woodwork and were, uh, okay, Monkey D. Luffy. Someone's asking, can you give me, sh you said shut out. Can you give you me shut out? You were shutting you out. Shut okay, out. We are going to shut you out, Monkey D. Luffy, and also give you a shout out. You got it, man. Thanks for listening and being on the the, uh, the YouTube, you can subscribe and rate us at the two of you on Apple iTunes podcasts, Google podcasts, and Spotify. Search for two view emergency. It's always the number two view emergency, and it will come right up. Ratings help us climb the charts so that other clinicians can get some two view goodness. If you like YouTube and you want to see the video blog instead, well, number one, what I would do is this. If you're watching right now on YouTube, you go over to the subscribe button, you hit that so you know when we go live next time, okay? Um, but if you haven't done that yet, or if you've already done it, and you just want to see more videos of Martha and me and the rest of the gang here, search for Center for Medical Education, and you can catch the video version. Don't forget our website where you can go next level on any of our topics from any of our episodes, including all the papers and sites and nerdy books that Martha referred to. That's twoview.fireside.fm. Our audio and video engineers are Ricky Bucata and Dave Pett. Show notes are by Meg Dipple. 
Special shout out to Dave, who did all of the engineering himself by himself today. So Dave, thank you so much. Um, thanks again for tuning in, friends in EM. Share this podcast with a friend. Share your thoughts via email. And thanks for sharing your time with us today at The Two View. We had a good time. Have a good day and have a great shift. Yeah.